Marcelo. Support comes from you and from the River Reporter newspaper in Narrowsburg, New York. Riverreporter.com. From an undisclosed location deep in the Hudson Valley, it's time for Let's Talk Vets. Good evening. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Sandberg, reporting as ordered. Our mission is simple, to provide news, entertainment, and information of particular interest to area vets, active service members, and their families. And we welcome you this evening in uh, the midst of some very trying circumstances. We sincerely hope you're all managing with the new reality of living with the coronavirus pandemic. Well, these indeed are historic times. The threat is real and the measures employed by government at all levels may need to be extreme depending on circumstances. Everyone is affected differently. To complicate matters, the deluge of information, endless special reports and briefings, seems to be enveloped in a fog of anxiety and panic. Well, the largest contributor to that fog of panic, in my opinion, is speculation by the myriad of quote-unquote experts and, of course, the media. There's been entirely too much opinion passed off as fact. You know, each year the U.S. routinely experiences and deals with seasonal flu and the resultant infection, hospitalization, and unfortunate loss of life. The fact is this country has been challenged before and will be again. The U.S. has always prevailed when we pulled together as one. The majority of Americans take these challenges personally. So let's put this all in a bit of perspective. Of course, there have been a few other challenges over the years. The Declaration of Independence from England, followed by hostile occupation of British troops. The Revolutionary War. The Civil War, or as my brothers from the South refer to it, the War of Northern Aggression. There's World War I, where 16 million people, military and civilians, on all sides died. To complicate matters, the 1918 Spanish Influenza, infected more than 500 million people and killed 50 million people worldwide, 675,000 in the U.S. alone. The market crash of 1929 and the resultant Great Depression. There was World War II, tuberculosis, the Cold War, Korea, polio, the terrorist attacks on the South Tower, World Trade Center, 1993, and, of course, the terrorist attacks of 9-11. You get the point. The list goes on with many more periods of challenge for the people of this country. So as we would say in the military, let's put the scuttlebutt aside, pay attention to the official skinny. Take just a moment to think about what you hear and who is telling you. We're also bringing you military news updates during all things considered periodically throughout the week. 
So stay tuned to WJFF for these and other important official information pertinent to the WJFF listening community. If you haven't already done so, please consider giving to WJFF's Spring Fun Drive. You know, for 30 years, WJFF has brought you news, information, and entertainment from around the globe, coupled with unique local content. We are informative, we are global, we are regional, we are local, and we are accessible. We are WJFF Radio Catskill, your community radio station. Joan Page is a World War II veteran of the Royal Air Force, and Joan shared some of her stories with us on Let's Talk Vets in January of last year. Tonight, Joan relates her shared experience of living in wartime Britain. Legal Services of the Hudson Valley is fighting hard to reduce the justice gap. What is the justice gap? Well, that's the difference between the civil legal needs of low-income Americans and the resources available to meet those needs. First, however, here are some of your notable dates in April. April is the month of the military child, an opportunity to recognize military children and youth for their heroism, character, courage, sacrifices, and continued resilience. April 5th, Gold Star Wives Day, a day set aside to recognize the sacrifice of our Gold Star Wives. April 14th is the Air Force Reserve birthday. April 21st, of course, is Easter Sunday. April 23rd is the Army Reserve birthday. And April 25th is Anzac Day, Australia and New Zealand, a day of remembrance to honor those who served and died in military service for their countries. And April 30th is Military Brats Day. Joan Page is a World War II veteran of the Royal Air Force. We last heard from Joan in January of 2019. Tonight, her daughter, Angela Page, host of Folk Plus on WJFF, chats with her mom about her wartime conditions and the sacrifices of the British people. I'm hoping you can chat with some people who might not be able to go through some of the hardships you've gone through. So are you willing to talk to me about that? I am. So maybe you can start by talking about when you had to isolate as a family in um, World War II. How old were you? I was 15 when the war broke out. And you were still in high school? I was still in high school. Tell me about the Anderson shelters. It was four sheets of corrugated iron. It was in a, a semi u position, and when it was erected with the straight stick sticking up, uh, it made a shelter. Was this dug in the ground or just sat in the backyard? It was dug into the ground for four feet. The four feet that was straight went straight into the ground, and the curved place came up and made the roof. Okay. And if you had four people in the family, you had four sheets. My mother had four children, two of them, that's six. We had no animals. So we had six pieces of this metal. Okay. It went, it went side by side all along the ground. What happened to us, that the water and your air, as you breathed it, melted on the metal and dropped on you. Okay, when were you living in there? Every night? Every time there was a red raid or a purple raid. 
Okay. It was while we were in school. It was usually at four o'clock. You see, the thing about school was that we shared our school. We went to school from nine in the morning till four in the afternoon. When we, because it was getting dark then, you see, so the bombers were overhead. Here my mom explained that the German planes didn't have a lot of petrol and that they would turn back to refuel. And that was usually around four o'clock and the whole school would spend that time in the basement and then they'd walk home. And when we left school, the people from the Channel Islands, which had been overrun by the Germans, they had, they, they had no mothers and fathers, they couldn't live at home. We would take, we took them off the shores of, of the French islands and we took them into our schools, into our homes. So they came to my mother and said, you have two bedrooms or you have four bedrooms, you have to take these and dropped off two children or three children. Right. And that's Dad's story. He was one of the dropped-off kids. Yes, he was. Yeah, not in your area. But anyway, so back to... I'm trying to help people think about being so isolated and having a global or a countrywide emergency where you've got to fall in line with the new rules. Complete new line. Well, what did you do when you were in this Anderson shelter? How did you pass the time? We weren't allowed bare lives setting the place on fire. So we had torches and uh, lamps. When you say we, torch, you mean a flashlight? Yeah. Right. So we had flashlights, heavy flashlights. Took a lot of batteries and that gave light. We had to have a little light on all night in the air raid shelter because you didn't know what it was crawling up your face. <laughs> Yuck. I know. So you left that and you joined the Air Force. I left that immediately. I left school. Yeah. So tell me about food, because that's something people are kind of worrying about here. But in Britain, they organized food and rationed it so it was fair. Can you tell me how you remember that? Yes. We had the essentials. Two ounces of margarine. Two ounces of butter. Is that per person per week or what? Per person per week. Two ounces of sugar. They gave the little ones under five, another egg. What about other ways that your country pulled together? Like, I just remember people giving their iron to make bullets and things like that. The very first thing we gave were the railings on the wall. Steel railings or anything, aluminum, the wanted aluminum. Aluminum pans and pots, and, and so we all met in the local village on the village green, throwing in our pans. I see. Uh, you know, everything was rationed. We oh. had a limit of anything. Yes, but you could only have ten of those. We are, we have a boatload of bananas coming in Tuesday, and they will be into the stores. Uh, Wednesday, they're going to be so much a pound. Well, that, that boat would never come. I'm sorry, the boat was sunk <laughs> off the coast of Ireland. Mm-hmm. So now all those bananas are at the bottom of the Irish Sea. So we won't be getting them. But we are getting some carrots uh, and things like this. All the housewives lined up for all these things. The 
hitting more than the miss. I want to ask about, you know that they're trying to figure out places for extra beds in our current coronavirus yes. crisis here. So I'm thinking about the fact that when you were pregnant, you gave birth in a castle. What happened was that the gentry, which are the people who own the stately homes of England, all these huge homes you see in England, they were called the stately homes. And if you'd have seen Downton Abbey, you'd have seen it that these people at this house at Downton Abbey gave over a whole wing of their palace to the army. Right. And there were army people there all being bandaged up and all that kind of thing and all being looked after. But the others were housed in the palace, like I was housed in the palace. I had a bed and a room and all that in the palace. Is that, was, it, they would do that for anyone who was pregnant? No, they would do that for any girls that had served in the royal house. Oh, and you were, I see, okay. Any girl who had served in the royal house was entitled to do it. Invited by the lady to come and see their doctors, their two doctors there. And that's where my older brother was born. Has he or you gone back to that palace since? Twice. Uh, it is now a girls' boarding school. When I went first, my aunt took me. There was nobody to take me. And I didn't know where I was going. So we had a taxi all the way from Mum's house. So she just said, have a, have a, have a, have a nice house, a child, and left. And I wanted to go with her in the car because I didn't, I didn't know anybody and I didn't know anything. Mm. I went up to the front step of this palace, little me, 22 years old. And I said, I'm Joan Page and I've got to have my baby. Come in, come in. It was a very nice welcome. That's great. They really did do a good job. Yeah. And you're there in your residence with people your age. And they're doing their very best there. I think they're doing a great job trying to keep everybody separated. I guess your worst problem is boredom. It is. And you made the point. We were sent to war. You were not sent to war. But you were sent to sit and wait and make sure you did as you're told. And don't interface with people who are suffering. Do as the doctors say and keep out of trouble. That's your job. If all you have to do is be bored, well then, good luck. Yeah. Because the generation before us had to work. Well, they're both strenuous. There's a lot of people looking for emotional help and comfort, and not everyone has internet. You're very fortunate if you have any kind of support. Yeah, well, I've just had to stop chatting with you for one minute for a friend to drop off. Um, some things we needed, so that was really nice. So not everybody is going out. It's We're doing our best. I, that's right. Tough times. and My tough times. We're watching all those airmen die. Yeah. I was working with 19-year-olds and 20-year-olds new into the Air Force. Bomb fogger. They were bomb fogger. They were in there doing the bomb jobs. Yeah. One one was seen to the parachutes, one was seen to this, one was this. They all had that kind of work to do. 
I have never been on a bomb run when every plane got back. About three o'clock in the morning, and I'm at my desk trying to get these boys back. We knew they'd left Germany. We knew they would be crossing the French coast any time, and we're, our eyes are all gone, waiting for them coming in. And I was in charge of the watch a lot. And I, has anybody seen W yet? Anybody seen E yet? Because you didn't want to know their names on purpose? No. Yeah. I never looked at them when they came to the briefings because I didn't want to. If I look, P, this little lad in the corner was on P. I did this once. And I was in P, and P never got back. And I always imagine squirming and just tragic what we have to get through in tough times, right? I, I, I thought that little pee, and he was so nervous in briefing. And in, I think he knew he was going to die. They're the agonies that we had to put out with at work. Well, that sort of makes me feel about our nursing staff right now on the front lines with people in the hospitals. and Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I know in Italy they're standing on their balconies clapping as the medical people go by to work because, you know, we're all in their hands and their wisdom right now. Absolutely. But you see, you're looking 70 years ago. Yeah. Things not as advanced as they are today. You couldn't get an automatic this or an automatic that. You had to bend on your hands and knees and make one. Yeah, well, they're talking about making masks now. They're very short on masks, so now everybody's looking for them, and we need them in the hospital. So some corporations are changing what they make, and they're making masks now. So we're revving up, and it makes me think of your stories of wartime where you just changed what you used to do. And and it was us, 17-year-olds, that was doing it. When you think that those boys did all that traveling to Germany, dropping bombs, trying to get home with a broken aircraft. When you think of that, that was a lot for them to do. So they get back to England and it's the crack of dawn and it's foggy. Where the hell is the runway? So we had to invent what we call smog, smog disposal. Are you saying you had a machine to clear the fog? No, we didn't have a machine. We had a contraption. <laughs> okay. Well, what is it? It was kind of like tubes running along the side of the oh, runway. Oh, I see. Okay. You fill them with oil. Okay. And lit, it, and lit them. Once they're lit, they can see the roadway in the sky. Okay. We built the, mostly that was it. RAF station, right, in the name of a town. And it was the Pathfinder Squadron, so they'd got really hit. They'd really got clobbered. We had to be ready on the runway to bring them in. It's nobody, there's nowhere to land them. Anyway, we got, we got through, got a, a pattern of coming home. We got more and more of a moment time went by. And we got more of the Germans. And so the guy in charge of the German aircraft, his name was Goring, the guy in charge of the blitz. We got him worried. On November the 15th, we shot down 200 of his play. And so we called that Battle of Britain Day. 
And that was the height of the Battle of Britain, when all the young lads joined up. And they saved Britain. And Churchill said, never in the history of human conflict as so many people owed so much to so few. Now, how often did Tur- Churchill talk to you guys on the radio? How effective was that? It very, very. A lot of the stuff is what he invented. The tank, the landing gear. He built the landing gear in France. He was amazing. He, he, he was a doer, you see. He, but he uh, helped he, people emotionally, too. Yeah, he did. Very much so. And in Lake District, there are mountains. And they did a wonderful job of building tanks out of these mountains. Petrol was pumped into this mountain. That's how we protected our supply of oil so they couldn't bomb it. Because that's the only way we have oil to heat them back with. Um, it's making me think of how you fooled the Germans before radar on the Sheffield Plains. Oh, yeah. Not many people know about that. That was kept very secret. That was in the beginning of the war. It was 1939, and they started coming over with their planes. We had no planes, no oil, no anything. They were very skinny bombs. They weren't the kind of bombs that eventually were made for the war, you know. And then they got the, the buzz bomb, which was just a bomb. A bomb alone with an engine. Immediately that engine cut out. There was a noise. You hear that noise, you know there's one coming down. You just better get out of the way. But what's the um, story about them lighting up a field, making the Germans think that was Sheffield? Well, that that was it. It was covered in tanks, paper tanks. These paper tanks were in this... Um, the Bronte Moors. Okay. The Moors. They're just nothing but marshland. You know, they're, they're rough land. You can't use it. We even put a barrage balloon over the top of it. Because anything that was precious, like a, a factory that were making planes or something, we put a, a net over, electrical net, to trap the planes as they come down. And it was to fool them. So they wasted a year, complete year, bombed on Sheffield. That was clever then. That was wonderful. Once they found it, once radar got and they found Sheffield, they burbled it. When did they get radar? It was in 41. Well, thanks for reminiscing a little bit. I taped it, you know. Oh, you did? Yeah, I have it taped. So it's all right if other people hear it. It is all right if other people hear it. Maybe it'll help him in some way. This is WJFF Jeffersonville, and you're listening to Let's Talk Vets. I'm your host, Staff Sergeant Doug Sandberg. And here's some information regarding the Department of Veterans Affairs. In light of the ongoing 2019 coronavirus pandemic, many veterans have been asking questions about what the Department of Veterans Affairs and its medical facilities are doing to protect and care for veterans during this outbreak. 
Well, the House Committee on Veterans Affairs is in daily communications with VA leadership and would like to share the following information. Now, since this situation is evolving rapidly, we encourage veterans and their families to consult VA's website for the most current information, guidance from local VA medical facilities about their current operating status is available on each facility's website, which can be found through the VA Facility Locator Tool. What should veterans do if they think they have COVID-19? Well, before visiting a local VA medical facility, community provider, urgent care center, or emergency department in their communities, veterans experiencing COVID-19 symptoms such as fever, cough, or shortness of breath, are encouraged to call their VA medical facility or call MyVA311, which is 844-698-2311, and press 3 to be connected. Veterans can also send a secure message to their health care provider via MyHealthyVet, which is VA's online patient portal. VA clinicians will evaluate the veteran's symptoms and direct them to the most appropriate providers for further evaluation and treatment. This may include referral to state or local health departments for COVID-19 testing. What about routine appointments and previously scheduled medical procedures? Well, the VA is encouraging all veterans to call their VA facility before seeking any care, even previously scheduled medical visits, mental health appointments, or surgical procedures. Veterans can also send secure messages to their health care providers via My Healthy Vet to find out whether they should still come in for their scheduled appointment. VA providers may arrange to convert appointments to video visits where possible, and veterans can always request telehealth appointments from their VA providers. Can visitors still access VA medical facilities? Many VA medical facilities have canceled public events for the time being, and the VA is urging all visitors who do not feel well to postpone visits to local VA medical facilities. Facilities have also been directed to limit the number of entrances through which visitors may enter. Upon arrival, all patients, visitors, and employees will be screened for COVID-19 symptoms and possible exposure. What about VA nursing homes and spinal cord injury units? Well, on March 10, 2020, the VA announced that its 134 nursing homes and 24 spinal cord injury and disorder centers would be closed to all outside visitors. All clinical staff will be screened for COVID-19 daily before entering the nursing home or spinal cord injury unit, and the staff will work only within these units to limit the possible transmission of the virus. Exceptions to the visitor policy will be made for cases where veterans are in the last stages of life on hospice units or inpatient spinal cord injury units. How is the VA supporting those impacted by intimate partner violence? Crisis can disrupt daily life, such as the COVID-19 pandemic can interrupt access to key services, including resources for those experiencing intimate partner violence, IPV. VA's Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program, IPVAP, has coordinators at VA facilities available to support those using or experiencing intimate partner violence. For more information and resources about VA's IPVAP, visit their website. Visit also VA's Frequently Asked Questions page for more information on what veterans need to know about seeking care at VA facilities during this time. 
Well, Congress has been busy as well, as we know. On March 19th, the House passed legislation ensuring that student veterans will receive waivers for classes, changing to completely online instruction due to COVID-19. Even though students may be forced to switch to online classes, which under normal circumstances would lower the amount they receive for their monthly housing allowance, student veterans will now be able to maintain their current monthly housing allowance under this legislation. They're also pressing the VA for answers, and on March 18th, Chairman Takano, Ranking Member Rowe, and 25 members of the committee sent a letter to the Department of Veterans Affairs Secretary Robert Wilkie asking for frequent answers and updates on the department's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Members asked for daily updates on the number of COVID-19 test kits available to the VA, the number of veterans tested both internally and outside the VA, the number of employees tested, the status of all test results, including the number of positive and presumptive positive results, and the location and status of those patients. Data on the time required to complete testing, both initial testing to establish a presumptive positive, and the time it takes to receive CDC confirmation. Now let's hear from some folks at Legal Services of the Hudson Valley. They provide legal advice and protection for many Hudson Valley residents and veterans who otherwise could not afford legal representation. Would you introduce yourselves, please? Sure. I'm Andrew Lessig. I'm a Legal Services staff attorney working with veterans. I work in our Goshen office. Good morning. Thanks so much for being with us today. I am Shara Abraham. I joined Legal Services of the Hudson Valley in 2015. I was the veteran's attorney for about four years, and I'm now the supervising attorney in our Newburgh office. You're providing services to a lot of folks who otherwise would not have access to legal services for a whole variety of reasons. Like a lot of agencies that I interview, they service a lot of people besides vets. So what I want to know about is what you do for the overall good, and then we're going to drill down into more specifically vet-centric topics. Sure. Well, the, the mission of Legal Services of the Hudson Valley is to step in and provide assistance in civil matters where folks might otherwise not be able to have an attorney. Uh, everybody knows the Miranda rights that are read uh, on every cop show. You're entitled to an attorney if you can't afford one, but that only applies in criminal issues. If debtors are coming after you, if your landlord is coming after you, if you've lost custody of your children, you're not necessarily entitled to an attorney. And that's where we step in. We were founded in 1967 as Westchester Legal Services. We've since grown, first to cover Putnam County, and then in the 1990s we grew to cover Dutchess, Ulster, Orange, Rockland, and of course Sullivan County. How many offices do you have and where are they? Uh, currently, we have eight offices. Uh, four are in Westchester County. Uh, we have one in Spring Valley, one in Newburgh, one in Goshen, and uh, one in Kingston, New York, as well as one in Poughkeepsie. What specifically is the justice gap? The justice gap is precisely why we do the work we do. The justice gap is the difference between the number of people who can afford legal representation 
and the number of people who need civil legal services. The gap is enormous. One in five people qualify for free civil legal services, meaning they're income eligible for our services. But there's less than one civil legal services attorney for every 10,000 people living in poverty. So what does that mean? It means that in more than 70% of civil legal cases today, people go to court alone. People living in poverty are showing up for administrative hearings, trying to assert their rights, assert defenses alone. And when you go to court alone without effective legal representation, you lose everything. You lose your housing, you lose custody of your children, you lose your benefits that are vital to your survival. So where do your member attorneys come from? So interestingly, yeah. Andrew and I happen to be former mm -hmm. prosecutors. I don't think we're the norm in the office. Each and every attorney, each and every member of our support staff is here to do the public good. They're here because they've chosen to devote their lives to the public interest and to do justice. Shara hits the, the nail on the head there, I guess, so to speak. I mean, we have over 100 attorneys who work for our organization right now and dozens of support staff who come from all walks of life. Some have lived in this area their whole life and joined legal services straight out of law school. And some attorneys had whole other careers, like uh, Shara and myself, before we joined legal services. Um, but our, our staff is just the tip of the iceberg, too. Each year we engage over 300 volunteers, often attorneys or just members of the community who want to assist us in our work in serving the community who don't get paid for the services that they render. Uh, occasionally they might be able to get CLE credit uh, if they're attorneys, but for the most part they're helping us to you know, branch out further beyond what just the, the, the core staff could do on their own. This organization does not supply to a public defender. You guys, you guys don't necessarily fill that role, right? No. Okay. Uh, we, we help folks in civil legal issues, so anything non-criminal, uh, victims of domestic violence, of course. The people are represented by the district attorney's office, but that victim herself can always come to us seeking help with an order of protection in family court or just to let that victim know that under New York State law, they have certain rights. They can break a lease without any repercussions, for example, which they might not otherwise know. Let's take some of the line items listed on your website as part of your core work, protecting individuals from domestic violence. I mean, how would you get involved in a case like that? A lot of the survivors of domestic violence will come to us through referrals from our partners in the community. So like other agencies? Exactly. Okay. Fleeing an abuser is in itself a traumatic event, can have lasting and very significant consequences. Fleeing an abuser can mean financial insecurity, can mean housing insecurity. So we're there first to provide the legal assistance to help a survivor obtain an order of protection and protect that survivor from further violence. We're also there to help navigate the entire family court system because we'll, particularly where children are involved, we'll want to help a survivor obtain or maintain custody, perhaps modify uh, visitation that as is in place. 
with the abuser and what's really significant for this population that we serve is the warm handoff to our partners in the community to ensure that a survivor has support when he or she is going to court and will be facing the abuser in court in the civil proceeding, but also to have the support outside of the court system to ensure that he or she can remain committed to seeing the proceeding through to its resolution. Defending seniors against abuse, and I, I suppose there's some similarities there, right? Our elderly are among the most vulnerable in our communities alongside um, survivors of domestic violence. So our elder unit um, is another group of specialized attorneys that of course provide assistance um, and guidance in terms of advanced planning matters, preparing wills, powers of attorney, healthcare proxies, and so on. But the real critical advocacy comes in the area that you just referenced. They are vulnerable to abuse, abuse even by their own loved ones, so there is some critical and vital advocacy that our attorneys are engaged in to enhance uh, the protections that may already be in place to provide advocacy information and knowledge base so that the elderly person can protect him or herself from future abuse and, and even to seek remedies where remedies are appropriate. There's a number of other line items here supporting the rights of the disabled, I'm sure, has some similarities with some of that we've already covered, right? And uh, ensuring that the LGBTQ community is free from discrimination. And again, I'm, I'm sure there's cases of abuse and, and domestic violence and such that goes with that as well, right? Of course. Promoting children's well-being, that's kind of dovetails into other thing. That's part of your work with the family court and some of these other issues and keeping families in their homes. Serving veterans on the home front. Sure. So I would have to say that serving veterans is near and dear to my heart. It's the most meaningful work I've done in my entire legal career. Our work with the veterans population, and I'll mention we do, of course, work with active duty service members as well. Our work with veterans is multifaceted. We are working and working closely with partners like Westcup to keep veterans housed. We are working to ensure that our veterans are financially stable, and we do so by ensuring that they're receiving the benefits that they're entitled to. Often, that would be service-connected disability benefits. So you actually get involved as an advocate for the veteran with the VA? And, Absolutely. And, oh, you do? Yeah. Okay. Occasionally, we will assist a veteran with putting in the initial claim, for benefits, but often we'll refer to folks in the community who are expert in putting together those claims. Where we often step in is when an in, when a veteran has been denied service-connected benefits. That's where the lawyer steps in and puts together the legal argument, uh, and we've had great successes. So you must work closely benefits. with the veteran service offices. Absolutely, day my, in and day out. My friend John Crotty up there. Yep, the John Crotty, Howie Goldsmith, Stephen yeah. Walsh, you name it. Good people. Uh, yes, yeah, so in addition to, of course, the financial security I just touched on, um, when we've got income, let's say we've got a veteran whose only income is protected income, like Social Security benefits or VA benefits, we want to protect that income from predatory lenders or from abusive debt collectors. 
And finally, I would say a significant piece of the work that I've handled over the last number of years is in the family court arena. So with our veterans, we are working to strengthen family relationships by resolving family court issues favorably for everyone involved, um, including the veteran and the children. So you work with a lot of agencies. One of the points I made on our last program and continue to make that some of the oldest service agencies like the VFW and the American Legion were founded out of necessity after like World War One, when our government wasn't prepared to do anything for these folks, you know, returning in their defense, if there is one, they really had no idea the complexities of the, the maladies that veterans suffer from. Coming out of the battlefield, especially World War One, was horrific. But the, the, the fact that I made is, you know, aside from politicians renaming highways and wanting a pat on the back for doing the job that they were paid to do, there's a lot of people working very hard, like people like yourselves, but people in agencies like ATI yep. in Monticello and Westcop and some of these other agencies that are really carrying the burden and, and getting these folks what they need. So I imagine that you interface all the time with these agencies, right? Absolutely. I, I think your listeners might want to grab a pen or paper because the list is quite lengthy uh, and broad. Uh, we would not be nearly as effective as we are in promoting justice and securing rights for our veterans if we were not able to turn to agencies like Federation for the Homeless, the Sullivan County Veterans Agency you already mentioned. Uh, before we went on air, you mentioned BATS, which provides transitional housing and has at least uh, one home. We work hand-in-hand hand with ATI. In fact, we have office space within ATI's building in Monticello. We work closely with independent living and Catholic charity, uh, charities, SUNY, as well as uh, Monticello Housing Authority, Hudson Valley Community Service. And where it comes to our domestic violence survivors, we have very close relationships with Fearless, formerly known as Safe Homes of Orange County and Sullivan, and RISE, which is the Rape Intervention Services and Education Outfit in Sullivan County. Let's run down some of the some of the stats for your organization in, in terms of veterans served and Sure, absolutely. So let's, you said you said that your primary job is veterans. Correct, correct. There's over a uh, hundred attorneys in our agency, like I, uh, like we said, but we all specialize. And my speciality is helping veterans and their families. How many attorneys in your organization specialize in veterans? Four. Four. And of course, I cover for the most part Orange and Sullivan County. In Orange County, there's over eighteen thousand veterans, all of whom would qualify for my services. In Sullivan County, which is actually my home, there's over four thousand. You know, last year alone, our organization helped over 1,200 uh, veterans and, and their families in Sullivan and Orange County and beyond. And, you know, we touched on all sorts of issues, consumer debt, custody. But from almost half of those cases, it was just the ba most basic necessity, housing. The folks were at risk of being foreclosed on, at risk of being evicted. Um, the landlord wasn't taking care of their housing, for example. Do you find it that the veterans are reluctant to ask for help? Absolutely. Yeah. I'll give you a perfect example. A veteran may be 
reluctant to ask for help, but a veteran may also not have a full understanding of what he or she is entitled to. Sometimes female veterans in particular don't even self-identify as veterans. So what's so significant, I think I can speak for Andrew here, is that we establish rapport and a connection to our clients. Neither of us served, but we're here to serve now. And so by establishing that close connection and creating a safe space, a veteran who never would have imagined asking for help is able to do so. You gain their trust, right? That's job one. sure hope so. Right. So give me a straw example of a, a veteran's dilemma that you got involved with, how it came about, what were the issues involved, and how were you able to resolve that issue favorably? Sure. So I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. A female veteran uh, was referred to my office for a denial of public benefits. During the course of our conversation, there was reference to her children, children who uh, she was disconnected to as she was estranged from her former partner and had been denied essentially any contact with her children. Now, this particular veteran was in a same-sex partnership and had no knowledge that she even was entitled to, to visitation, that there were even any legal rights afforded to her under the law. So the, through the course of that initial conversation and several subsequent conversations, some encouragement on my part, we commenced proceedings in family court and established a regular visitation schedule. And she's back in her children's life. It also came out during those initial conversations that she was housing insecure. She was in a shelter. <laughs> we don't need to mince words here. By the end of my representation, she had secured permanent housing. So not only had she reestablished relationships with her children and had secured permanent housing, but through the amazing partnerships we have in our community, she was connected with other veterans in the community and became a mentor with one of the mentoring establishments in this community. It was a pretty remarkable transformation. So do you follow up? You know, do you know, like, for instance, this one, do you know how she's doing now? We do periodically. Sometimes we lose touch with our veterans, and there are a number of factors at play. Veteran doesn't have cell service. Phone number's no good anymore. Veteran doesn't have transportation. Benefits got cut off. So we do lose contact, but we do also try to maintain ties and our veterans know that they're always welcome to return should their situation ever change and they need our help again. Is there anything here that we haven't touched on that you'd like to get across to our listeners, veteran or, or non-veteran issues? I think one of the things that I picked up is if, look, if, if you're not sure, don't be afraid to ask because the worst that can happen is you get the answer no, right? Absolutely. And sometimes when you ask, you open up other possibilities or opportunities? I think a good start for 
veterans, maybe even veterans who are not necessarily in crisis, but for veterans to seek out other veterans in the community to establish connections and find support. I think an issue facing our nation, but certainly our veteran population, is isolation. And by connecting with other veterans, even if you have a hard time self-identifying as a veteran, if let's, but establishing connections with other veterans can be really meaningful. And even just showing up to the Hudson Valley Veteran Task Force meeting on Wednesday mornings, we have folks there who are ordinary veterans, just want to be surrounded by other folks advocating for veterans. That's a perfect way to get connected and find the resources that are out there. And of course, yes, if you are in crisis, if you are uncertain about your rights, please come to us. We'll never say no. Are there any organizations that you know of in like Orange County or Sullivan County that are collegial type organizations that veterans should think about I would say a good place to start would be the website for the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force. I mean, certainly show up to a meeting. Second Wednesdays of the month, right? I believe so. And I believe on the website they've got a list. I mean, the events that are ongoing every month in Orange and Sullivan, too many to count. So that's a good place to start for sure. And how is Legal Services of Hudson Valley Participation in that organization benefiting your efforts and how is your participation uh, benefiting the Hudson Valley Veterans Task Force? Well, first and foremost, just being there. For example, how you and I met, uh, making ourselves known to other organizations in the area and getting to know the other organizations in the area as well. So we can sit around once a month and say, hey, I've got a veteran who has this issue. Can you help them? I have a veteran who's facing this issue how do you think I should address this? And, of course, as Shara uh, mentioned earlier, you know, neither of us served. I come from a family of uh, veterans back all the way back to my great-great-grandparents. Um, everyone joined the Navy except me. Um, when I decided to go to law school, I got ripped pretty hard for it by my family, but <laughs> that's another story for another day. But, uh, you know, we don't have that experience necessarily of having been the ones who served. Um, I I certainly know what it was like to grow up in a veteran's family, but not having actually been there, it's so very helpful and useful to actually know firsthand from people dealing with the VA, hey, this is the person you need to talk to. Here's their phone number. And that just opens so many doors. And it opens the floodgates sometimes on cases where I haven't been able to make progress at times. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was astounded to learn. I think the VA has over 300,000 employees. It's it's amazing. And, and one of the stories I did recently was that I think it was 104,000 VA employees either spend some or all of their time on union business during working hours. And our administration yeah. has put a stop to that now. But... That's the kind of, of stuff that's astounding. When you hear, if you put in your own claim, you're almost guaranteed to be summarily dismissed on the first go-round. Do you have any opportunity for our listeners if they wanted to volunteer to help you? For example, I did a piece on the veterans' court system, and I interviewed um, actually one of the, the, the fellows that initiated that whole thing. 
and we had a, a great interview, and he tells the story of how it came about. Somewhere, I think, up around Buffalo, there was a, a veteran before a judge, and the judge couldn't get the veteran to cooperate with him. That's right. That was the first veterans treatment court in Buffalo. And they had a couple of staff people in the courtroom who were veterans, and the judge says, take this guy outside and see if he can talk some sense into him, and they did. Uh, do you guys do anything like that? Do you have any any peer advocates you know, in your organization that work with the veterans to, to help them along to gain their trust? Or? Well, we certainly partner with organizations who, okay. who can help us do that. In terms of, you know, partners in the community, there are some great organizations that can help us with that. And we do have some volunteers, actually, who have served. And, and what, what, what would they do within the organization? What would their jobs be? Well, it really depends. Um, if somebody wants to volunteer with our organization, call the local office. The, the, the phone numbers are on our website, lshv.org. Okay. And, uh, you know, say, hey, I've got availability Wednesdays and Thursdays. I want to come down and do what can be done. And obviously, if someone's an attorney, they can step up and take cases pro bono and okay. represent folks. If someone's not an attorney, if they just simply want to advertise our organization to uh, other organizations and our services to other organizations and individuals we might not uh, otherwise be able to reach, that would be great if they could help us serve papers, uh, that would be great. If they could help us um, make phone calls, reach out to, to clients who obviously in Sullivan County may be hard to reach all the way out in Calicoon, out on the west side of the county there, that would be great as well because, of course, it is hard to cover you know, the, the whole territory. It's just a, a few attorneys alone. It, it really depends on what the individual is qualified and willing to do, but any time, any any experience that can be given to us, we'll, we'll find a way to use that. And if somebody wanted to write your organization a nice big fat check, how would they go about that? <laughs> well, you can certainly do that as well at lshv.org and uh, donate through our website. And I'm certain if you called um, down to our headquarters in White Plains or to any of our local offices, they would love to uh, let you know uh, who to make the check out to. Okay. Anything else that we didn't cover that you'd like to say? If you're a veteran, if you're the family member of a veteran, uh, if you know somebody who is a veteran or simply somebody who is low income and in need of some legal assistance, even if it's just some advice over the phone, please have them call us. Our, our intake line is 877-574-8529. The individuals uh, on the other end of the phone are going to ask you some questions, try to parse out exactly what's going on, and then the case will sift through our system. It'll land with myself, Shara, or, or another attorney who's best able to assist with that specific issue in that specific geographic area, and uh, that individual will give you a call or you'll receive a letter within a week or two, and we'll, we'll take it from there, and we'll help you at least help yourself, if not be able to go to court with you and advocate for you on your behalf. And what's your website again? It is www.lshv.org. And your phone number? 877-574-8529 if you're looking to open a case with us. You can also follow us on various different social medias. Legal Services of the Hudson Valley can be found on Facebook, Twitter, as well as LinkedIn. Obviously, we'd love to have a follow, and we'd love to have folks share our 
information further and further um, throughout the Hudson Valley. Well, thank you very much for your time, Shara and Andrew. And uh, I'm sure that our listeners will um, have learned something about another organization that is there to pick up the slack and help our veterans. Thanks again. Thank you. Well, as they say, that's a wrap. We'd like to thank everybody for making this show possible, especially Angela Page and Joan Page and Andrew Lessig and Shara Abraham of Legal Services of the Hudson Valley. And once again, thank you for joining us on Let's Talk Bets. Please let your friends know about this program and share with us your comments and suggestions for future shows. Also, send us your upcoming events so that we may get them on the air both in our normal public service announcement segments and this program. You can send us an email at vets at wjffradio.org or at the voice box at 845-431-6500. Until next time, I'm Staff Sergeant Sandberg, your host, coming to you from a bunker deep in the heart of the Hudson Valley. Thanks for listening. Thank you for your service. Company dismissed. Hmm. wonder if these sea rations are still good from 1950. WJFF Radio Catskill, keeping you connected. As our communities across the region take steps to slow the spread of COVID-19 by limiting close contact, people are facing new challenges and questions about how to meet basic household needs, such as buying groceries and medicine and completing banking activities. The following information from CDC provides advice about how to meet these household needs in a safe and healthy manner. Shopping for food and other household essentials. Avoid shopping if you have a fever, cough, or shortness of breath. If possible, order food and other items online for home delivery or curbside pickup. Only visit the grocery store or other stores selling household essentials in person when you absolutely need to. This will limit your potential exposure to others and the virus that causes COVID-19. When you do have to visit in person, go during hours where fewer people will be there, for example, early morning or late night. Here are ways to protect yourself while shopping. Stay at least six feet away from others while shopping and in lines. Cover your mouth and nose with a cloth face covering when you have to go out in public. If you are at higher risk for severe illness, find out if the store has special hours for people at higher risk. Disinfect the shopping cart. Use disinfecting wipes if available. Cover coughs and sneezes. Do not touch your eyes, nose, or mouth. If possible, use touchless payment. Pay without touching money, a card, or a keypad. If you must handle money, a card, or use a keypad, use hand sanitizer right after paying. After leaving the store, use hand sanitizer. When you get home, wash your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. There is no evidence that food or food packaging has been linked to getting sick from COVID-19.
WJFF Radio Catskill, your community radio station. We're here for you, no matter what. And support for the last hour comes from the River Reporter newspaper in Arrowsburg, New York, riverreporter.com, and from the Women's Health Center in Holmesdale, Hamlin, Waymark, Carbondale, Lords Valley in Pennsylvania, physicians and certified midwives who deliver. The Women's Health Center is a Wayne Memorial Community Health Center, WMH.org. This is WJFF. It's your community radio station. We've got an hour of groovy tunes from the Retro Cocktail Hour, and then we'll hear a live hour of news with the national conversation from All Things Considered. It's WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH, and support comes from the law office of John Ferrara, Monticello, New York, providing legal services in the areas of matrimonial and family law and criminal defense. John.Ferrara, 55.